Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Jason Carroll from the Cambridge Research Institute on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. You did your PhD work at the Garvan Institute at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia, and received your PhD in 2002. You then moved on to do a postdoc at the Dana-Farber-Kenster Institute in, at Harvard Medical School. Then in 2006, you became a junior group leader at the Cambridge Research Institute. In 2010, you became senior group leader and in 2019, professor of molecular oncology at the University of Cambridge. And since 2022, you are academic lead of the breast cancer program at the Cambridge Cancer Center. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Oh, so I wasn't sure what I wanted to do when I was in school. I, I, just, I think I gravitated towards biology because it just made sense to me. Um, I just I could make logical connections. Um, and it was just a subject that I appealed or that appealed to me the most. I had a very good biology teacher and he will never know that he, he you know, had a strong influence on my career. Um, but he did. And he was a substitute teacher as well. But he encouraged me to do biology. And then, yeah, I went off. I did a undergraduate degree that was originally meant to be in environmental management um, with um, a focus on marine biology. This was in Australia. And then one of my professors said to me, there's no money in marine biology. Go do something human health or, or uh, molecular biology related, which disappointing because Australia, most people live on the coast. So you would have thought there'd be enough jobs in marine biology. But I ended up going and doing uh, molecular biology, which I just loved. I just loved it. It just made sense. And then I spent time in a on plants. I did a little bit of work on plants. I spent a year in a virology lab, which didn't really appeal to me. And then I then I spent a year in a cancer lab, but that really appealed to me. And then I just followed the biology from there. Yeah. So let's talk about your science. Um, that centers around understanding how estrogen receptor influences genes, gene transcription and how this contributes to breast cancer progression. Um, the estrogen receptor is the muscle transcription regulator of breast cancer phenotypes and the archetype of a molecular therapeutic target. I mean, the beginning of your research career during your postdoc, you mapped all estrogen receptor and RNA polymerase II binding sites on a genome-wide scale, um, identifying the authentic cis binding sites and target genes in breast cancer cells. Um, can you talk about how you got started looking at the estrogen receptor and what you found um, in the study? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So I actually did my PhD on estrogen receptor, but it was on cell cycle progression. So we were using the estrogen receptor system in breast cancer, mostly as a switch to be able to study um, gene expression events, particularly associated with cell cycle. So cell cycle inhibitors and, and fluctuations in the cyclin proteins. And the reason we were interested in estrogen receptors is it's got this really beautiful switch where you can take breast cancer cells, you can deprive them of estrogen and they stop growing, but then you can add back this, this stimulus estrogen and you can synchronize transcription. And it turns out it's a really powerful system to be able to synchronize waves of transcription to study whatever it is you're interested in. At that time, we were interested in downstream target genes. And then I heard Miles Brown present data at a conference when I was a PhD student and he would just he was just getting the chromatin IP method working in our field where he was mapping 
binding sites of proteins. Um, but at that point, it was on one or two promoters of known estrogen target genes because that was all they they uh, they knew um, at the time. Um, and when I was looking at postdocs in Boston, I was really interested in the technology. And actually, he was mostly using ER-positive breast cancer models because of the switch, and it was a system to be able to try and study transcription factor biology. So I'd say, at least for my postdoc, when I was looking at ER transcription, it was mostly from a technological point of view, and the system was amenable um, to, to studying trans waves of transcription because it had this on-off uh, ligand switch. But I have to say my interest in ER-positive transcription at the beginning was mostly because I just like transcription and DNA and transcription factors. And then over the years, my interest in the clinical relevance of estrogen receptor has evolved, and I think that's really flourished. But at the beginning, it was, it was mostly a system to be able to study transcription by synchronizing cells. Yeah, so did you learn anything from those genome-wide binding patterns? Yeah, we we did actually. We learned a lot um, almost overnight. So when we were doing the first chip, it was chip on chip um, experiments. I mean, at the beginning, we weren't even sure whether these experiments were going to work. They were tiling microarrays that were developed by um, Affymetrics. We had the chip part working, but we needed to be able to to do something with the DNA that was stuck. We were thinking of cloning and sequencing, which Rick Young and his lab were doing at the time. And then these tiling microarrays came, right, tiling microarrays came along right at the, the perfect time. And so we we realized straight away that if we hybridized the DNA that we had from the chip to these microarrays, we could interrogate for the first time non-promoter regions because the original tiling microarrays had two chromosomes. So it had 25 base pair probes, every 35 base pairs across the entire non-repetitive sequence of chromosomes 21 and 22. It was only 2% of the genome, but even just that, that 2% of the genome allowed us to map ER binding sites and pol 2 binding sites in Uh, regions that were not necessarily sites that we would have we would have traditionally looked at, so non-promoter regions, and we spent a long time trying to get the method working, uh, getting the, the ligation-mediated PCR working in, in my hands, and then getting the hybridization condition, and then of course we needed to develop computational tools to be able to process the data, normalize the data, and visualize the data, and we were fortunate enough to work with Shirley Liu at the Data Faber and her wonderful team of people. Um, and we did the experiment. I remember the first day when we got the first piece of data back and I was sitting around a computer in, it was actually Bill Seller's office in Dana-Farber in Boston. And we had a group of people surrounding uh, behind me, surrounding me, and we had companies on the line and we uploaded the data and it looked like gibberish. The first time we saw it, it all looked like gibberish. And then Shirley Lou said, you've got to turn the game down, turn the game down. So we turned the game down and all the background signal dropped and there were these peaks. <laughs> and I remember the feeling it was it was pretty exciting. And somebody gave me a pat on the back and said, well, this is going to be interesting. And I think the next week after that, I think in, in my career, I learned more about the biology of my pathway in the week after that than I have in any other period in my life. We had only two chromosomes, but it taught us a huge amount about estrogen receptor biology. We noticed straight away that although there was one or two ER binding sites at promoter regions, most of the binding sites were in the middle of nowhere. Of course, these are the regulatory elements that we know and love now, but uh, at the time, this was pretty surprising. We realized that there were clusters of ER binding sites. It wasn't necessarily just a single binding site in the middle of nowhere. We would get clusters of three or four binding sites adjacent to each other. Um, we found um, binding sites near genes that we thought were estrogen regulated, where we now had potential switches or, or uh, cis regulatory elements. And um, yeah, it was really, it was really exciting. Actually, it was incredibly exciting. And then the weeks that followed that, we discovered enriched, we were looking for enriched DNA motifs. Um, and this was, again, collaborating with Shirley Liu's lab. 
and she found if you took um so it turned out on the first two chromosomes when we did the experiment there was 57 er binding sites so there were 57 er binding sites on the two smallest chromosomes and even with those 57 sites we learned uh, about the general patterns of estrogen receptor uh, genome occupancy sites but what we could do even with those those few those those few dozen sites we could put them together and we, we could find enriched motifs and the top motif that came out was the estrogen responsive element gg uh, ggtca and then an inverted half site three nucleotides away and so that was great and that told us that the experiment had worked and that these binding sites that were in the middle of nowhere were actually probably genuine bona fide um, er binding sites but then shirley lou came to me the next day and she said she said i found another motif it's a motif for the forkhead transcription factor family and we went away for a day and we thought about it we thought oh actually that sounds pretty interesting i didn't know anything about forkhead proteins but the, the motif for these transcription factors were enriched within the 5070R binding sites. And we thought about it. We said, you know what? There's a forkhead protein that we think is going to be involved. Let's go find it. And it took us a, a year or so to find it. And it turned out it was a protein called FOXA1, um, which we now know is the pioneer factor for these nuclear receptors. And I got my job where I am at the moment because of that discovery. So I'm glad I, I pursued the, the, that, that motif that Shirley uh, showed us. But it was, it was a very exciting time. We were learning every time we looked at the data. We were learning something new. It was it was really yeah. exciting. So you you just mentioned FOXA one. Let let's move into that direction. Uh, FOXA one is a pioneer transcription factor, and hence it has some specific properties. You also looked at the FOXA one, as you just said, you discovered it, and or at least in in this context um, of breast cancer, how does it influence um, the estrogen receptor chromatin interactions? So how do those two proteins interact, and what do they then do together? Yeah, so I mean, FOXA1 is a really unusual uh, transcription factor. It is a transcription factor, but it doesn't actually have any transcriptional activity per se. It is more, as the name suggests, pioneer factor. It's on the chromatin first, and it functions more as an adapter protein, but it's it's really limited in where it's expressed. So in normal healthy tissue, it's only expressed in mammary, prostate, and liver. It looks like it gets co-opted or gets switched on in other cancer types, so we're not quite sure what it's doing there. I think we know the most about FOXA1 from breast and prostate. Uh, and in breast, is relatively straightforward. So if you have your compacted chromatin, so you have your DNA and it gets compacted, and normally if you have your nucleosomes like this, so if this is a, these are two nucleosomes, and you would have your linker DNA sequence in between. And what happens is you get these linker histones that will bind to the sequence in between, and they they condense the chromatin or compact it further, so it becomes um, even more um, inaccessible. And what we know about FOX, and FOX is a, a real nightmare to study. It's difficult to purify. It's difficult to to, um, uh, to be able to study. But there's been some crystallography work from the, with the mouse DNA binding domain of the mouse FOXA1. And even from that little part of the FOXA1, what we, what we can see is that it looks like the linker histone. So it actually physically has a structure of linker histone, but higher affinity for those linker proteins. So if you've got nucleosomes like that, instead of the linker histone coming and binding to that, that little piece of DNA in between and doing that, FOXA1 will outcompete it and it sits there and it will keep the chromatin open. And then it, what it does is it's scattered across the genome and it will recruit nuclear receptors. It loves working with nuclear receptors. So estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor in breast, it likes working with glucocorticoid receptor. In prostate cancer, it will work with androgen receptor. And what it does is it will bring in, so in breast cancer, it will bring in estrogen receptor and basically drag estrogen receptor to those regions in the genome where it is residing. So we know that without FOXA1, estrogen receptor doesn't bind the chromatin. So if we take FOXA1 out of the equation, 
Um, the chromatin will close up, an estrogen receptor will float around in the nucleus, but it, it's unable to make contact with the chromatin. So it's very much, I guess, the analogy we use is, you know, if the genome is a ball of wool and you condense it, so it's a really dense ball of wool, the estrogen receptor can't interact with it, but FOXA1 is like Velcro. So it's like the sticky Velcro that can bind and then it can recruit proteins to those sites. And it's the proteins it recruits that bring all the goodies that can contribute to transcriptional activity. So FOXA1 will demarcate where in the genome these nuclear receptors can bind. So things like estrogen receptor. And then estrogen receptor is the platform that brings with it cofactors. So things like P300, CBP, CARM1, um, a lot of these enzymes. And then that will contribute to chromatin loop formation and gene expression. Really where estrogen receptor binds and the genes that are switched on by estrogen receptor are dictated almost entirely by its pioneer factor FOXA1. So you said that FOXA1 will compete with linker histones, and what what you mean by that is probably histone H1, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. that's right, yeah. yeah. And, and, and in fact, sorry. Is it like structurally similar to H1? Yeah, so it is. So, it, I mean, I'm trying to, people have tried to crystallize full-length FOXA1 and they've tried and failed. It's a very, very difficult protein to purify. But what we do know from at least the mouse DNA binding domain is it looks similar to, to, to histone H1, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, you then also looked at the connection between androgen receptor and FOXA1 that is present in a specific breast cancer subgroup. Um, so what is so special about this connection to form a subgroup, a special subgroup, and what did you find? Yeah, so that's um, a really unusual subtype of breast cancer. Now, we know most breast cancer is estrogen, estrogen receptor positive. So about three quarters of all breast cancers are defined by the presence of estrogen receptor Those patients are typically given drugs that block estrogen receptor, and for most women, they'll get clinical benefit from the from those drugs. What we know is that there's, a, of course, another subtype of breast cancer, which are defined by the amplification of HER2, so um, signaling protein. Um, and then you've got the remainder, the leftover cancers, and they're called triple negative breast cancers. Now, these triple negative breast cancers, as the name suggests, they're not defined by the presence of anything. They're defined by the absence of estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, and HER2. And they, they, uh, I think at some point, at least in the mind of some people, these triple negative breast cancers, which make up about 15% of all breast cancers, small slice of the pie, but it's a big pie. So we're still talking about lots and lots of patients. They were typically thought of as one um, class of, uh, of breast cancer. But actually, we know, we know within those triple negative breast cancers, you've got different um, types, so different genotypes and different um, uh, molecular subtypes. You have your BRCA1, BRCA2 mutant cases. You have um, uh, about a third of these triple negative breast cancers, so it works out to be about 5% of all breast cancers, have a really unusual feature. So they're FOXA1 positive. So people thought, and they have a gene expression signature that looks like it's an ER positive breast cancer. Um, so if you look at the genes that are expressed, you would normally lump those cancers together with ER positive breast cancers because they express the, the target genes that are typically switched on by ER, but they're actually estrogen receptor negative. And in those cancers, the, the dominant nuclear receptor appears to be androgen receptor. And what we think is happening, now this is based on preclinical work, um, it still needs a little bit more um, follow-up work, but what we, the working hypothesis at the moment is that there's an order of hierarchy for these nuclear receptors. So FOXA1 will sit on the chromatin, it loves working with nuclear receptors, and it will recruit the highest affinity nuclear receptor to the chromatin. Now, if estrogen receptor is there, estrogen receptor is one that it recruits. If we activate progesterone receptor with progesterone ligand, it can also get recruited to some sites in the genome. But in, if a tumor is ER positive, androgen receptor can't compete. So it's floating around in the nucleus, but it can't compete for FOXA1 binding. But in this 5% of breast cancers, this unusual subtype of this triple negative breast cancer, there's no estrogen receptor. And we think what's happening is the next highest affinity nuclear receptor is androgen receptor. 
And so what FOXA1 does is it, it will just grab the next highest affinity nuclear receptor, which in that 5% of breast cancers turn out to be androgen receptor and it will recruit androgen receptor to those sites. And androgen receptor will recruit the same cofactors that estrogen receptor would normally recruit. And you get genes switched on. And a subset of those genes are the typical ones that we would see in any ER positive breast cancer. So this really confused the field because if we looked at the gene expression profile of those that 5% of breast cancers, they, they would get binned with the ER positive breast cancers, but actually by immunohistochemistry, they're estrogen receptor negative. And we think what's happening is that androgen receptor is the driver there. So if this is right, and there's cl clinical trials that are ongoing at the moment and some that have been done, actually the drug or the thing you want to be targeting is not estrogen receptor because it's not expressed, it's androgen receptor. Um, but the in that context, androgen receptor is still dependent on a pioneer factor, and that pioneer factor is FOXA1. But you still would need to know which subgroup you're dealing with, right? That's the problem. That's that's exactly right. So I think the I mean, in an ideal world, we'd be able to molecular, um, we'd be able to stratify at a molecular level these different breast cancer subtypes and then tailor the treatment to them. Now, if you're using gene expression microarrays or, or sorry, gene expression signatures as a, as a biomarker to to predict which patients are going to respond to drug treatments, you might think that that's an ER positive breast cancer. Whereas, in fact, by immunohistochemistry, which is a standard routine assay that's used, thank thank goodness, we know that that if that, that tumor and that woman had an ER negative tumor, we would know that. But actually, what we what we'd really like to know is even if she, we know that her tumor is ER negative or his tumor is ER negative. Um, what we'd like to know is whether it's this, what, what we call molecular apocrine, whether it's this 5% of breast cancer where there is a druggable transcription factor. It's just not estrogen receptor, it's androgen receptor. And actually trying to identify those patients is, yeah, it, it's uh, challenging, but I think that's where we need to go. Mm. Next, you look at ER binding events in primary breast cancers from patients with different clinical outcomes and in distant ER positive metastasis. Um, and you also found connection to FOXA1 there. Um, can you talk about what you found by looking at these binding events in patient samples? Yeah, so we, I mean, we've been talking about trying to do transcription factor mappings or chip seek from clinical um, samples for a long, long time, and mostly because if we go to any meeting, um, you know, any of the conferences, of the breast, the, the the prostate meetings, a lot of the discussion is over whose model is best, right? And you know, the old saying, and and people are quite happy to criticize models and criticize their own models, rightly so. And there's that old saying, which is that all models are liars, but some are useful. <laughs> and, and that is absolutely true. Now, we had done a lot of work in um, our breast cancer cell line models and almost entirely in one model called the MCF7s, because despite the fact that ER positive breast cancer makes up three out of every four breast cancers that we see, we have a really limited number of models. So there's no genetic model. So people have tried to make ER positive uh, breast uh, tumor models in mice and have failed. You can get some tumors that are occasionally ER positive, but it's it's not straightforward. People have tried to make ER positive breast cancer cell lines and have largely failed, but there are a handful that that have taken that the community use. So the number of ER positive models we've got are really limited, and really the workhorse in the field is this cell line called MCF7. So we had learned a lot about estrogen receptor binding from MCF7 cells, the binding sites, the discovery of FOXA1, the long-distance enhancers, the target genes, the link with some of the histone marks. And we thought, you know, at one point we were, we were characterizing MCF7s and we thought, actually, we need to know whether the conclusions we're drawing from this cell line model, whether they're applicable to primary tumor samples. And as the, the transcription factor mapping approaches got better and better and more refined and the sequencing depth got, got greater, we got to a point where we thought, actually, you know, I think we we should be able to do chip seek from clinical samples. Now, the one of the issues with clinical samples, of course, you don't have a homogenous uh, cell population like you do in a cell line model. 
But the benefit of our pathway is even if we've, if we've got a, a tumor, so if we were in theory to take a piece of ER positive breast cancer tumor, if we did the, the chip, we would only be enriching from the cells that expressed the protein of interest, the antigen. And because ER is typically expressed in the cancer epithelial cells, even if there was lots of stroma um, and you know fat, fat there, these cells are typically estrogen receptor negative. So we, we actually theorized that we could take a chunk of uh, primary tumor um, cancer and we could use the ER chip as a way of pulling out from just the, the cells that we care about. So we don't have to worry about breaking cells up or trying to get dissociate cells. Um, and so we were uh, optimizing ChIP-seq and optimizing it. And it got to the point where we thought, you know what, I think we're ready to try and test this on, on clinical samples now. And I went to a couple of uh, some of our clinical colleagues and I asked them whether they would be willing to, to share some samples. And I don't think I did the pitch very well because one of the one of the colleagues, I said, we want to try this method. It works in cell lines. We're not sure it's going to work in the clinical samples, but we're going to need lots of samples and it might not work. And are you willing to give it a shot? And the first couple of people we spoke to were not overly enthusiastic. No surprise. And then one of my close colleagues at work um, said, look, I've got three tumors. He, I showed him the data. He was convinced. And he said, give it a shot. And actually, it turns out one of those three tumors was one of the best tumors we we, we did in the next 10 years. And so and it worked really well. Actually, it worked better than I was expecting. I thought the data was going to be really weak. I didn't think we were going to have the sequencing depth um, to be able to map ER binding sites. But the quality of the, the data we got was really surprising. And as soon as we had data from those first three and we started presenting it, then all of a sudden people wanted to give us lots of samples. And it meant for the first time that we can actually map ER binding sites in tumors with different clinical outcome. And until that point, we didn't have the ability to do that. We had our cell line models. We had one or two models. Um, they were taken from pleural effusion. So they were taken from women decades ago from um, metastases. But this, for the first time, allowed us to map ER binding sites from primary tumor samples where we knew the women had different outcome, where we knew a subset of the patients had hallmarks of a, a treatment-responsive tumor, and we knew those women responded to treatment, and we could take equivalent tumor samples from women that we knew by immunohistochemistry, their tumors had hallmarks of uh, a non-responder. Um, and we knew that those women had died of breast cancer because these were archival samples and allowed us for the first time to map ER binding sites and to compare binding profiles in, in tumors that had different outcome and technically worked really well. And what we found as soon as we got the data was really quite clear that there were differences in binding sites and it wasn't random. So it didn't just randomly move around the, 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 the genome from sample to sample. You tended to get clusters of, of recurring genomic contact sites in patients that had good clinical outcome and you had different but recurring sites in tumors from patients that have poor clinical outcome. And so this for the first time made us realize even in women that are ER uh, uh, treatment um, uh, non-responsive, so women that are likely to not respond to ER targeted drugs, ER is still there and it's still on the chromatin. And that was surprising to me. I didn't even think, I, I knew ER was present, but I didn't think it was going to be very functional. And it turns out it is functional. It's just doing something different. So instead of regulating one set of genes, it's regulating a different set of genes. And that might seem quite subtle, but actually the difference is, is really profound because those different genes, of course, contribute to changes in response. And then whether that woman is likely to respond to ER targeted drugs or not respond to ER targeted drugs. So yeah, I think for us, a lot of it was just accessing the samples and getting confidence to be able to do it. And now ChIP-seq from clinical samples is pretty routinely used. Um, yeah. If we fast forward to this year, <laughs> are you now thinking of using another method than chip, thinking of the new cut and X methods, or is it still yeah. um, something that is not really working in those samples? Yeah, I should probably be a little bit careful about what I say. So, I mean, we, like everyone in the in the world, we've been pretty excited by cut, tag, cut, and run. 
Um, I mean, the concept is fantastic, being able to do it from very limited material, particularly um, from clinical samples where we know you know, the, the, the tissue is, is limited and you get what you get and we get clinical material after the pathologists have taken what they need. Um, so for us, the idea of being able to do chip and transcription factor mapping from really limited cell number is is obviously very appealing. Now we've had um, we've played with uh, cut and run, cut and tag, and it worked for for us. It works really well for histone modifications, but we're struggling to get it to work for transcription factors. I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one in the world who would say the same thing. And this is, of course, this is an evolving tech technology. You know, as it evolves, it will become presumably the standard method for mapping transcription factors and um, and and histone modifications. One thing we've spent a lot of time doing is optimizing the chip and the chip seek, where we can actually do chip seek from core needle biopsies from patient samples, and we we are now actually doing um, tumors where we we um, uh, freeze them and we take cryo sections, and we can do chip seek from you know a dozen or a couple of dozen cryo sections. So the chip seek works really well, even from limited tissue um, number. I think so. We've we are exploring other methods. We're not at a point where we're unable to to. Uh, progress projects because ChipSeq doesn't allow us to do it. I suspect in the, in the coming years, we will be at that point. We're trying to get um, metastatic tissue where these metastatic deposits can, are sometimes really quite small. So I think, you know, we are looking at these other technologies because I think for some of the questions that we are asking at the moment where we know we're going to have really limited tissue um, where ChipSeq might, you know, might not be uh, amenable, I think we are going to have to look at other other technologies. But in our hands anyway, these other approaches, they're just for the amount of tissue that we can start with um, at the moment, they're, they're not working as well as ChipSeq. So, you know, we're, we're using ChipSeq. Um, we, we're happy to move over when when the time is right, if the methods have evolved. One of the other things, and I'm, I'm, this might be really contentious, particularly for this audience, is whether that we can integrate the data from cut and run, cut and tag with ChipSeq. Now, I'd assumed a peak was a peak and the peak calling methods are relatively similar. And I thought you could overlay the data. Our computational biologist said he's not entirely comfortable doing that. And it does worry me a little bit because we have so much good ChipSeq data out there from ENCODE. We've we've been putting we've been depositing data for for uh, you know a decade or more. Um, we've got huge amounts of data. You've got things like um, uh, the Giggle analysis and you know some of these Systrom analysis analyses where you can mine public ChipSeq data, and this is really powerful. You put your coordinates in, and it tells you what it looks most similar to, and you can discover you know, potential new associated proteins based on experimental data. And the thought of drawing a line under that and saying, okay, we're not going to use that data anymore. We're going to start again with this new modality, this new this new um, uh, peak information. It, it, it's a little bit of a worry because, you know, the community does benefit by the fact we have so much data out there and you, you can do a lot of work just by mining public data. So I think if we get to a point where the methods, these other methods work really well, brilliant. I'm totally on board but I want some confidence that we can compare it to some of the data from ChipSeq and some of these other methods. Yeah, I mean, we I talked to Claudio Cantu a few episodes ago, and there are other blacklists for for the peaks that you need to apply to cut and run than for ChipSeq, and maybe there will be some somebody who finds a way to integrate the data just like by giving them some percentage of overlaps or whatever and yeah. and, and, and and things like that. I mean, there will yeah. hopefully be be something. Yeah. Um, so the one, so the one we played with. So this is a little bit of a, uh, a sidestep. Is um, so for, there was a, a quite a few years ago. Now we were playing with the um, chip exonuclease. I don't know whether you um, had much of, much of a go at that, or whether that was a technique that really got much traction in the company or in, in the field. But 
So this was a high resolution transcription factor mapping. It was still a chip-seq based method, but with this five prime to three prime exonuclease digestion. Um, and that turned out to be technically a nightmare, but actually was really quite informative because it gave us really quite sharp peaks. Um, and again, when we set that up, um, so we rebuilt Frank Pugh's method, which was a beautiful, it's a beautiful idea um, from Frank Pugh with the five prime, three prime exonuclease where you end up digesting each strand. And then the bit that overlaps is the bit that's protected. And so you get these really sharp peaks. Um, so we rebuilt that on the Illumina platform. I had a very talented postdoc called Aurelian Sarandor who rebuilt it on the Illumina platform. And the data we got was fantastic. We got these really sharp peaks and we thought that's it. That's going to be our transcription factor mapping approach. But it was just so technically difficult. We just couldn't justify it. And we realized even if our peaks are like this instead of like that, we're still getting the same information. Um, yeah, I mean... The, the question is if a 100 base press smaller peak is really making a difference. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think there was one. So I think there was probably one example where I thought there was there was an interesting observation. So we did the, I mean, we did the classic triumvirate of in our breast cancer models where we did chip exonuclease of FOXA1 estrogen receptor, and then we did GATA3. So GATA3 is the third transcription factor in the ER complex. You have FOXA1, GATA3, they always work together. We're not sure what GATA3 is doing. We think it might just be a chaperone protein for FOXA1, but it's, it's definitely needed. And then you have estrogen receptor. And if we do ChIP-seq, we get peaks that overlap and you know, there's an apex and you can say, yeah, they're quite similar. Now, for years and years, we were looking at the, where the motifs were. So looking at whether there was predictability between the FOX, the GATA, and the ER motif. Didn't really see it. I mean, we, sometimes we saw patterns, but there wasn't any really consistent um, pattern in where the motifs were relative to one another. But then when we did the chip exonuclease, we found something that was quite interesting. We found that the FOXA1 and the GATA3 peaks were really sharp and the motif was underneath it. The estrogen receptor peak was really sharp, but the motif was not under the peak. And what it meant to us was that FOX and GATA would bind. Estrogen receptor might bind over here because the motif's there, but it would it would almost lean over to, to fit in the space. So when you mapped it, the binding site, the apex was here, but the motif was there. And so actually what it did tell us was sometimes it's not just necessarily where the motif is. You just need the motif within 50 base pairs or 80 base pairs or whatever it was. You just need that to be able to recruit the transcription factor. And then it will squeeze into the space and fit around the other proteins. And then it'll recruit these cofactors. And that was quite interesting where the motif is needed to bind, but actually it's not the apex of the peak. The apex of the peak is, is different depending on where the estrogen receptor can squish between the other proteins. Yeah, I mean, sometimes the question, when is a peak a peak and what is a peak can... Yeah. Almost be philosoph philosophical, and uh, if you do chip or cut and tag for a histone mark, I mean it's it's yeah. theoretically and and methodologically dif uh, di different, and maybe this is why the peak look different, and the apex might be on the nucleosome or next to the nucleosome, depending exactly. on how you how you fragment the chromatin, right? So, yeah, that's right, that's right. I mean, so I remember way back when when we were doing original chip on chip. Um, so one of the actually one of the there was a fantastic lab who was um. We were just generating the first set of peaks. So we would we had our 57 peaks. It was a lab um, that were generating their peaks, and they had a handful of peaks across their, their genomic regions. And they were developing tools to be able to call peaks, and they ended up developing some of the best tools at the time. But their first tool was called BiI, where they would sit and they would go along the, the chromosome and say, I think that's a peak. What do you reckon? <laughs> so, you know, and it seems completely arbitrary, but actually a lot of these peak callers are. I mean... <laughs> You put in variables that um, you know steer them one way or another, and then one way or the other, and then you are, you know, you are basically setting arbitrary thresholds about what you call a peak and what what isn't called a peak. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, when we talk about methods, one method that is not genomic but is uh, proteomics, um, you also worked on that, and uh, by that you wanted to um, find proteins that interact with FOXA1. 
Um, so how did you come up with this approach? Did you just say, well, if I can put my chip samples on uh, an array, I can also put it through MassPick? <laughs> that was pretty much it, actually. That was that was the, that was the logic. We, we we had we were refining methods for doing the the chip part, the purification of the the protein. And we always said, um, you know, if we're pulling out DNA and we're see we can sequence the DNA, why can't we take the protein that we're washing away or we're throwing away? And why can't we run that through a mass spec? And we would speak to mass spec people and they would say, well, it's a, a fundamental difference, of course, is you can amplify the DNA, right? You can't do that with protein. And mass spec sensitivity, when we're talking about this years ago, wasn't ideal. And then I had a really great PhD student called Hisham Muhammad, who's in Oregon at the moment, um, his faculty there. And he said, oh, let's give it a shot. And we spent, I think, almost more time coming up with the name. It's, it's called RIME, Rapid IP Mass Spec of Endogenous Proteins. I think we spent more time coming up with the name than the method. We basically just said, we're going to take a chip. We're going to modify the conditions a bit, and we're going to run it on the mass spec. And he did one of the first experiments, and it just worked beautifully. Like, it worked fantastically. He purified estrogen receptor, and he looked at the proteins, and we got GATA3, FOXA1, P300, CAM1, CBP, um, you know, all the usual, all the PRMTs, and a lot of these, the, the usual um, unexpected suspects. And we thought, well, that was pretty, that was pretty easy. And then we added a, a, a quantitative step. At that point, we were doing SILAC labeling. Now, now we've got other quantitative methods. And that allows us to purify our transcription factor of interest. And we are mostly looking at transcription factors and chromatin cofactors. And then we can look at protein interactomes using this RIME method. And by doing quantitative RIME, we can look at the differences between condition one and condition two. Uh, so for example, we can pull out estrogen receptor from tumors that have different outcome. We can pull out FOXA1 from cells that minus and plus whatever stimulus you've got or a mutation in estrogen receptor versus wild type estrogen receptor. And it's a really powerful tool that allows us to look at changes in the proteins that are coming onto and off of our favorite transcription factors. And because you do, we do one chip and then we can sequence the DNA and do the protein. So, uh, sorry, so you can do both from the same sample? You can, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, sometimes we need to bulk it up a little bit, but yes. Um, and that was the original plan. It was always to, be, to take one IP and to look at not just the binding sites, but also the proteins. Um, and it's turned out to be incredibly powerful because in the past, when we were doing transcription factor mapping, if we had new coordinates in the genome and we were looking for associated proteins, we might find a forkhead motif and that might point us towards FOXA1. Um, and that worked perfectly well, but it took us, I don't know, a year or more to actually figure out that FOXA1 was the forkhead protein that was binding to the forkhead motif, whereas now the proteomics tell us the protein is FOXA1. Um, so we really get right to the heart of, of the proteins. So one thing we're trying to do at the moment is this, and we've got um, some unpublished data on this at the, the moment, which we're hopefully going to wrap up eventually, is we're trying to modify this rhyme to try and look at protein subcomplexes because, I mean, as you know, we always look at things in bulk. Um, and when we look at our transcription factors and our cofactors, we're looking at where they bind in the genome in a population of cells in a tumor or a population of cells from a tissue culture experiment or a PDX experiment. Um, and if we look at these peaks, we can find that all of our favorite transcription factors and cofactors all pile up. And if we do a RIME experiment where we pull out ER or FOXA1, we can find all of those proteins in the complex. This never made sense to me. I thought, how can all of those proteins be binding to the same site at the, at the, you know, in the same cells? Now, one possibility is that they're at the same site, but not at the same, not in the same cells. Um, or that they're binding, but one is coming on and one is coming off. Um, and we know that happens, of course. But we thought, actually, maybe we can use RIME in a slightly different way. And so we've done an experiment, which we, we're calling it the matrix experiment, where we've purified estrogen receptor FOXA1 and, and 18 other transcription factors and cofactors, things that we know are important in, in transcriptional regulation of the ER pathway. 
And then, so we've done rhymes for all 20 of them. And then we've done targeted mass spec for each of the 20 proteins. So basically it's a big matrix where if cofactor one doesn't interact with cofactor two, they might both interact with ER, but if they're not in the same complex then you're not going to pull out cofactor one and identify cofactor two. And actually the data is really quite interesting. We've just got the pilot data, but it suggests that there are all of these different subcomplexes, even just with those 20 candidates where they're not all in the same complex and they're not all at the same side at the same time. And actually some of these subcomplexes are not what I would have expected it's a class of co-repressors with a very specific coactivator, which I never would have guessed. And so, you know, we're trying to we're trying to use rhyme in more sophisticated ways rather than just to pull it out and pull out a protein and identify everything stuck to it. Try and use it in more sophisticated ways where we can start to deconvolute some of these these protein subcomplexes. And yeah, some of them are really quite unexpected, but we're going to be pursuing some of these. Um, we know some of them are drug targets, of course, but we don't know the combination of drugs to use. But hopefully, if we can figure out where the dependencies are and you know, what proteins are mutually exclusive and whether there's cooperation or not and subcomplexes that might help us, you know, make informed decisions about what combinations of treatments we should be using. Yeah, it would be good to do single cell mass spec, but uh, since we uh, can't... So, yeah, so, so the people are talking about it. So people are trying to do rhyme. So Hisham Muhammad is trying to do rhyme, single cell rhyme. Now, whether, I don't think, the, even, even with new mass specs, I don't think the sensitivity is there, but he's got a couple of ideas which are interesting. They're really interesting. Um, and I think we'll get to a point where It'll be he calls a single molecule rhyme. Um, so watch this space. Yeah. Yeah. So last but not least, I want to talk about DNA methylation. You also looked at the connection between five MC levels, five HMC levels, and the regulation of ER target genes. Um, so what is the connection there? Yeah. So we ended up pulling out. So we did one of these rhyme experiments, and we pulled out TET two actually, and it was really around trying to identify, you know, what TET two is, what TET two is doing, um, and you know, the link with the methylation. And it turned out to be actually turned out to be pretty complex. Um, the, the hardest part for us was actually trying to figure out um, reagents to be able to map TET2 binding. So we figured actually if we don't have TET2 binding sites, it's going to be pretty hard for us to be able to, to study this pathway. So we spent a long time trying to optimize methods to be able to, to study TET2. Um, and then we got those binding sites. And then it really was just doing you know, some cursory links with 5MC, 5HMC. Um, and we're still trying to figure out what TET2. So we published some work in cell reports a couple of years ago, but we're still trying to figure out the function of of what TET2 is and the link. So it's there and there are correlations with these methylation marks, but there's, there's a part of it we still, we can't make sense of. So we're still, it is there. It is, you know, it's recognizing some of these marks. Those marks are definitely occurring at some of these ER binding sites, but we're not 100% sure what's going on. So that is, that's a work in progress. And I think that's something that we've got to come back to and we've got to reassess in the future because we made the initial correlate, correlative observation, but the functional connection we're still struggling, we're still struggling to figure out. I mean, one thing we have realized is um, and it's a conclusion that we we come to quite a bit in in when we discuss these things is we think because things co-occur, so we see 5-HMC or we see methylation at ER binding sites that there's going to be some connection with ER, right? If we see DNA damage um, proteins at ER binding sites, there's likely to be a connection between DNA damage and, and estrogen receptor. And I think actually stuff just happens at open chromatin. So I think if you have regions of the genome that are open, Things will happen there. You will get perturbation, so DNA damage will occur. You might get methylation or 5-HMC. Um, you might get recruitment of proteins that recognize that or change that. You will get things like uh, estrogen receptor get recruited. And just because they're proximal doesn't necessarily mean that they're functionally connected. Now, one of the disadvantages of RIME is because we cross-link everything, if we pull out a protein, so we and we've done this, where we pull out ER and we get TET2, for example, or we pull out FOXA1 and we get Q proteins or DNA-PK or PARP uh, proteins, we assume that because they're in the same complex, there's going to be a functional connection between the, you know, the, the methylation and ER or the DNA damage and ER. 
And actually, I think a lot of it is because they just happen to be proximal to each other at open chromatin. And because we can cross-think them and, or co-map them to sites in the genome, we assume there's a functional connection. But for some of these things, things like DNA damage and the estrogen receptor pathway, we've looked, but we can't see any functional connection. Now, other people have, and I think there was something there. Um, but I just, I think one of the issues that we face as a field is just because we see stuff that's proximal in the genome doesn't necessarily mean that there's actually a connection. Um, yeah, and that's that, you know, that's one thing that we, we have to keep reminding ourselves of every time we do these mapping experiments, find things that are in the same protein complex or cobine and think, oh, they must be connected. Um, sometimes they are, but sometimes they're not. So imagine you would have to turn in a grant proposal tomorrow. What you what would you write in there? Ooh, okay. Um so funny you should ask that because I did turn in a grant proposal not yeah, long ago. And, and it's easy. <laughs> <laughs> so we are really digging so um, so we're taking a big step back and we are, uh, we, you know, we like doing method development and we like doing stuff in clinical samples and we are doing all of those things. But the one thing that we haven't done for a while is really just dig into this pioneer factor, FOXA1. Now, we know FOXA1 is the foundation protein in breast cancer. It looks like it's the foundation protein in prostate cancer. It looks like it's getting co-opted in pancreatic cancer. We're doing some work on that. Um, we don't we don't know a lot about FOXA1. Like I said, we haven't been able to, to uh, solve its structure. This is something that we are doing in collaboration at the moment. Um, we don't know anything about other than one or two publications that have come out recently. We don't know anything about post-translational modifications or enzymes that regulate FOXA1. Um, so there's actually a lot we don't know about FOXA1. So the one thing that we are doing now um, as a lab is we're going you know, top gear, we're really throwing everything we've got to try and, and characterize FOXA1. It's a really deep characterization of this pioneer factor. So what are the amino acids that we need to care about? Not just mapping the DNA binding domain amino acids that are relevant for binding, but are there post-translational modification sites in FOXA1 we should know about, we should care about? Um, are there proteins that are associated with FOXA1 that might be contributing to its ability to bind to the chromatin, its ability to to, main, to, to, to be expressed or to, um, to contributing to FOXA1 protein stability? One thing we know is that FOXA1 will recruit this compass complex that will deposit the methylation marks at these enhancers. Um, we're interested in looking to see whether there are proteins that might be able to block that interaction between the compass complex and FOXA1. But we've been kind of tiptoeing around FOXA1 for years and years and years and years. And we realized actually we really want to dig into this because actually this is a really unusual protein. If we want to learn about proteins that can change chromatin structure and things that are important, not just biologically, but clinically, this is a really great protein to do it to do it on. So actually, the one thing we are, we're doing quite a lot of is doing hyper-focused studies, really detailed characterization on FOXA1. Now, as I said, it's a bit of a nightmare to work on, so we might regret it, but um, I just it's a fascinating protein. And it's surprising, even after all these years, how little we know about it. So that's that's our top priority at the moment, is really trying to figure out how does this protein work? Is it the same in breast, prostate, and pancreas? Things that we learn about FOXA1, will that be applicable for other pioneer factors, both known and unknown or yet rediscovered pioneer factors? So I think for us, it's about really digging into the details. And we find that stuff fun. You know, we, we like doing that kind of detailed molecular biology. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. So in the last 42 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Uh, did we miss something important or do you want to add something? Um, Really, I think that's pretty much everything, I think. Um. Yeah, you know, I have to say when I started, I didn't really necessarily know this was what I was going to work on. Um, like I said, I started off looking at a system because it had a beautiful on-off switch um, and allowed us to study to, to study uh, transcriptional processes. Uh, of course, it was important in biology and our clinical relevance, so we, we pursued it. Um, and actually, I think, yeah, I think where we've ended up is not necessarily where I thought I'd end up, but it's fascinating. And, you know, I think we still have a lot to learn about the genome. 
we look at the genome in one context, we realize that it changes in, in cancer. Um, as cancer progresses, we get changes in the structure of the genome and the proteins that are expressed, the proteins that combine to that genome. And so, you know, I think there's a lot, there's a lot to learn. Um, and I'm just excited to have the freedom and the flexibility. And you know, as these new tools come along that allow us to study protein, protein interaction, protein, DNA interaction, DNA, DNA interactions, you know, it's all pretty exciting. And, you know, I think it's a great time. It's a great time to be doing epigenetics and, and chromatin biology. Um, to finish, could you give us a brief summary of your most important finding? Oh, so I'd probably say it's not anything that we spoke about um, today. I mean, linking, I think discovering Fox. So Ken Zarat had shown that FOXA1 was a pioneer factor on a chromatin template in a tube. I think linking FOXA1 or giving it a disease linkage um, and, and showing that there are pioneer factors in cancer, I think is something I'm very proud of and work that, um, you know, I think... Um, we like to think has helped shape that, that that specific field. But I think probably the thing I'm most proud of is we, we did some work probably about 10 years ago where we were using these methods that we're talking about now. So we were using you know, ChIP-seq and, and um, uh, RIME and some of these methods, but we were applying it to a very specific question in breast cancer, which was trying to understand the role of progesterone receptor in breast cancer. And we, we discovered progesterone receptor from a RIME experiment. We did the genomic mapping of it. And what we discovered really challenged the field. So there was really quite strong paradigms in the field, really rigid paradigms about how progesterone receptor worked. Um, and we were challenging those. And I think we upset quite a few people, not on purpose, but that's we were just following the biology. I think it was one of the first times in my life where I was doing something where I was really forcing or I was, I was yeah, I was tackling an established field rather than piecing together something new where you tend to have less resistance. Um, and so for me, a lot of it was about managing the people and and trying to negotiate with the, the established people in the field and trying to change paradigms. And this has culminated in a clinical trial called Pioneer, which we've run and it's finished and it's about a report in the next month or two. And so going from that initial discovery all the way through to clinical trial, and the clinical trial is trying, it's, it's um, the goal is to take a really cheap, super cheapest chips off patent progestin and to combine it with standard of care for primary ER, ER positive breast cancer. So adding this really cheap treatment that might actually be beneficial, we'll see what the trial says. Um, and it also has some other uses. And that's a combination of 10 years of, of work. So I think that's probably something I'm really quite proud of because I've seen it from the initial discovery all the way through to the potential translation um, or the clinical applicability. But it was, the, I think it was more the journey as well. It wasn't a smooth ride. Like it was, I really was challenging entire fields and, and having to rewrite paradigms. And there are still people out there that think we're wrong. We'll see what the clinical trial says. I think that's probably one of the most challenging, but the most rewarding projects I've been involved in. Yeah, so thank you, Jason, for your time and for being on the show. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.